to be honest, you, I, I think you're just trying to dodge answering this question. No, I have a good answer. I'm good at answers. Um, right, <laughs> I'm good at answers. <laughs> That's the trailer right there. Welcome to another. Yes, that's right. Another episode, we're still going, of 80% Mental. All the podcasts you will ever need. If all you need is a podcast about sport performance psychology. Uh, I'm Dr. Pete Oldershogger. I'm joined by Hugh Gilmore, who's already been to the pub this afternoon. So has a head start on this uh, Friday night recording. Hugh, how's your afternoon been? And how much are you looking forward to this late night uh, recording? of 80% You Mental? have no idea how much I'm looking forward to this. This is... <laughs> This is like the Christmas of podcasts. I honest to God, if our guest came in dressed as Santa Claus, I would be a happy man. <laughs> happy man. That's how happy I would be. Can I do the introduction, Pete? Uh, you can do, yeah. I've, I've, like, I've got a few more things to say. Oh, okay, right. You go ahead. Yeah, do your boring stuff. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> this is like... Um, you know, the uh, Hollyoaks After Dark specials where it's basically the same, but someone says shit because it's after the watershed. I think that's what this is going to be like. Oh, no. Oh, shit. Well, there's two already. <laughs> Have we got a quota, you think? Probably three. We'll keep cap it at three. We'll let our guest have one. <laughs> All right. Well, um, t- tonight's episode is a bit different, and it's different because Hugh and I aren't going to be asking the questions. You will. Uh, a few weeks ago, we asked you, our handsome listeners, to ask us anything, obviously within reason. And we've got some great questions that we're going to try and answer tonight. But because we feel like our guests are what really makes the podcast, and we've had some brilliant guests on the on the uh, podcast so far, and actually, I think it's probably a good time to just take a minute and shout out to everyone who's come on the podcast up until this point. We, uh, we love all of you. Well, most of you. Um, but anyway, because it's uh, because we think it's our guests who make the podcast what it is, uh, we've invited another special guest to help us answer the questions that you've sent us. Hugh, you are itching to do this introduction, so I'm going to let you do it. Yes. <clears throat> so this guest needs no introduction with 3,132 Twitter followers. He has been described as the Mother Teresa of sport, without <laughs> the high heels, with such witty insights as change happens at the speed of trust. In the red corner, please welcome standing ovation for none other than Mr. Elliot Newell. And you clap. This is where you clap. Do the claps. Well, uh, what, what I'll do, I can put some, uh, I'll put like a sound effect in of like some applause or something just to make it sound good. Okay, good stuff. Um, well, so, sorry, Elliot. Do you have a PhD? No, I don't. No, because I'd hate to call you Mister if you had had a doctor. Because Pete's always giving out doctorates to people without one. Do you want one? Pete'll, Pete'll give you one now if you want one. You know, I'm presenting at I'm presenting at a conference next week, and they've put all the flyers out with Doctor Elliot Newell on it. So yeah, well, just... the, the, what, that means you're a doctor. Well, it's official. Apparently, yeah. Wow. I mean, nobody's checked. <laughs> um, I, I have actually got a proper introduction for uh, for Elliot, but I like I like you so much, so I'm just going to go with that. Actually, uh, Elliot, welcome, welcome to eighty percent mental. We're uh, really glad to have you with us. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. 
Um, just so our listeners do actually know, I mean, I know you have 3,000 odd Twitter followers, so they obviously know who you are. Um, but for those of you who don't, Elliot's a senior performance pathways scientist at the EIS, the English Institute of Sport. Uh, he is a base, he's accredited sport and exercise scientist, specializing in psychological support, chartered scientist, and currently a BASE's SEPAR candidate, which makes him a sports psychologist in training. I know a lot of our listeners are uh, stage two or SEPAR candidates, so sports psychs in training, so I'm sure that they will really appreciate the insights that you're going to give uh, tonight. It occurred to me earlier that I don't actually know what SEPAR stands for. Sport and exercise psychology accreditation route? That sounds plausible. Nailed it, yeah. Is that, is that it? yeah. Awesome. I'm not a doctor for nothing. Um, so Elliot's, <laughs> Elliot's particular interests uh, are in performance communities, talent development, uh, and the philosophy of sport. So as I say, welcome to 80% Mental. We're really looking forward to, uh, to hearing your insights. Uh, all our guests are because they're the ones that are asking the questions tonight. First question then. This is the question that we got from Instagram, from the ballroom coach uh, on Instagram. And what we'll actually do is we're going to tag everyone who's asked a question in the description for the episode as well. So if you want to go and follow them, please do that. Have a look in the description uh, on the website, www.80percentmental.com. Uh, and you can follow everyone who's asked us a question tonight. So this is from the ballroom coach on Instagram. And the question is, hi, love your podcast. I know that sport being 80% mental is a common statement in sports psych, but do we have any research papers that show this? I thought about it today. I was looking around and struggling to find it. Uh, I was thinking that you might know, considering the name of the podcast. I think this is awkward. I think you should know. You should know. And I'm going to what? defer to you guys to, to defend your, your podcast what? title. I, 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 I could take this one if you want you this is this is very awkward but yes that's why i'll let you take it pete oh, go okay. ahead uh, all right so basically the show is called 80 percent mental because uh 90 percent mental.com was already taken um <laughs> it's not a lie true, 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 it's not a lie it's a true story and um 70 percent mental is just too many syllables to say over and over again no and 60 is 60 is just too low <laughs> So that's that's why it's called eighty percent mental. As far as I'm aware, there isn't any literature which said that sport is eighty or ninety or seventy percent mental or anything in between. It seems implausible that there would be. I tell you what, this got me thinking, <clears throat> and this is where, like, uh, I'm glad you said interested in the philosophy of sport. I'm going to do that really annoying thing where I answer a question with a question, but I'd actually like try to think quite deeply about this question, and it made me wonder what would the value of an answer be. Like, what, what purpose would it serve? And then I wondered, well, isn't it 100% everything? Like, so rather than try and allocate a percentage to mental, physical, technical, tactical, but isn't it 100% everything? Why are we trying to dislocate the mental from the other factors that make up performance? And then I realised they were just asking a question about the title of the show, Chill Out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you might might, might be overthinking that. Do you um do you, do do you, do you want to know what we uh what we thought about calling the, the podcast? Please tell me. I've got I've got a list. Oh no! Have. Don't read that list out. Don't read that list out. Well, I mean, the first one was the sports psychology podcast, which I think in hindsight was probably a little bit a little bit dull. 
and apologies if any of these po- uh, podcasts already exist and we're about to make fun of their names. Um, Sport Thought. Oh, that's cool. Sport yeah. Um, mind matters. That's not, not so bad. Spot, no, smart. This is this is this is why we didn't call it this. Smart sport, the sports psychology podcast, because I can't say it. Spot sport. Um, uh, inside sporting minds, that was good. Inside the sports mind, not so good. Uh, the smart sports, the smart sports, the. Sp- <laughs> Again, this is why we didn't call it this. The Smart Sport Psych Show. The Mind Pod. Ooh. The Brain Pod. Um, I think we did well to stick with 80% mental, to be honest. I think that's the best one out of all of these. There, there, there are more. I want uh, Talking Heads. Oh, that was a good one. So, yeah, yeah if you, you want to... Like, uh, well, if, you, if anybody's out there who wants to start a sports psychology podcast, uh, don't bother because this is the best one. Um, and But if you do, then you can you can come to me and buy one of those names off me. I wondered if you could put like a uh, a Twitter poll out to see what the fans think the best alternative is. <laughs> what should we be called? We should do that for season three. Rename the podcast. <laughs> I shudder to think. <laughs> Certainly not the spot, 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 spot. Yeah, let's not do that. Um, I, th- I think we should probably just move on, to be honest. Should we go to another question? I mean, basically, the answer to that one was, no, there isn't any research because it's just something that people say. Okay, next question then is, this is from Twitter. There's a couple of questions, actually. I'm going to put these ones together because they're, they're sort of fairly similar. So uh, Johnny McPhee on Twitter and uh, Matt Moore on Twitter as well. Johnny says, creating a programmable athlete of the future. You each have three skills to build the foundations of a mental skill set. What do you choose? And Matt's question is, is kind of similar. So uh, what mental and or emotional qualities do you believe the very best performers in or outside of sport possess? So they're similar questions. So we'll, we'll kind of answer them together, really, uh, in terms of just the top three skills or qualities that you'd want an athlete to have or that you think the best athletes uh, have. Uh, who, wants to, who wants to go first? I think I'm going to force Elliot to go first. <laughs> I did think about this, and I did write some stuff down, actually. I'm, I do, I'm better prepared for this podcast than I was for my A-level. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I did think about this, uh, and I even wrote a couple of notes. So one of the things I, I just can't get away from, um, you have to have, if you're going to be a performer, you have to have the mental capacity, the mental skill to do that perception action couple and stuff. You have to be able to see information in the environment and coordinate your body to respond to it. And that's a mental skill for me. Then I've probably cheated a bit because I've gone for like these big umbrella things that probably have like loads of different skills underneath it, but there's stuff around self-regulation skills. How do you manage yourself in different situations, emotionally, motivationally, uh, cognitively, behaviorally? And then the third bit would be skills related to learning and quality practice um you have to learn (laughs) and you have to uh in my mind at least based on certainly the development athletes that i've I've seen and worked with like if you can't turn up and make the best use of the limited practice time you've got then it kind of falls on the face eventually so skills in and around that area for me you know 
you've actually named a couple of uh, PCDs there, you know, from the Dave Collins episode. What's your thoughts on PCDs then in terms of, is this is this what the answer here is? Go and listen to episode one or two with Dave Collins and, and learn about the PCDs. Is that what you're saying, Elliot? No, I don't think that's what I'm saying. I don't think David want me to say that either because I think, <laughs> if, uh, I think if he heard us talking about the answer, um, I think he would challenge us pretty hard, even if the answer was PCD is. Um, I think the point is everything for me has got to be developmentally minded and contextually relevant. So um, what's going to help you progress and how does that help you cope with the demands of your environment? Like, and if you've got mental skills, strategies, capabilities, whatever it is, to do that, then you're in a really good position. I think the thing is for me, me here is contextually developing relevant contextually. Is that so, something like that was said, where it's about the development and contextually development of an athlete and contextually relevant? How do you assess what somebody needs to develop? So I could give you an example. Like, so I'm doing some some support for hockey at the moment and um, we don't talk about what the mental skills that you need to, to be a great athlete we talk about what kind of stuff do you have to deal with to be a great athlete let's work back from there so um, working with coaches and athletes and analysts like hockey have come up with 12 scenarios that present themselves in games that are usually the difference makers and then the question is well how do we cope with that how do we manage that? How do we excel in that scenario? So it might be um, when you have made a mistake or what if we go one nil down in the first quarter? Well, those kind of things. What it does is it opens up a conversation of the different ways in which people can bring themselves to that and the different skills they can utilize to manage that scenario rather than saying, what we're going to do is teach you commitment, teach you goal setting, teach you imagery, and then you just work it out based on the scenario. Start with the scenario first and then work backwards. So it's thinking about the challenges first. So rather than saying, well, here's a bunch of skills that will make a good athlete, it's like, okay, well, what is the context saying we need to have in this particular situation or that particular situation? So thinking of the challenges first and then, okay, well, what skills, what abilities, what qualities do you need to answer those challenges, which which makes makes total sense. Um, and, and I think you're right. There isn't kind of one answer to this this question. And I guess I've I've chosen some completely different things. So I, I went with consistency of effort, which you could think of as uh, commitment rather than motivation. And we, we've spoken about the idea that motivation kind of fluctuates a lot more than commitment does. So the second thing that I picked was the ability to regain focus. Because I think a lot of people would say, right, you need to be able to like have this laser focus on whatever it is that you're doing. And it's just really hard. It's really hard to do. That's really hard to focus on one thing for any amount of time. So for me, it's not about being able to maintain focus. It's about being able to recognize when you've been distracted because we all get distracted all the time by, I don't know, the crowd or like my internal thought processes or like, oh, look, there's a moth over there or, you know, what am I having for dinner? And you know, we, we all get distracted all the time. So it's when can you can you recognize that and bring yourself back to where it is that you need to be? So the ability to regain focus. And the, the third one for me is about being well-rounded and having stuff in your life that isn't just about sport. 
again, it's something that we've talked about on on, on a few episodes, Hugh, uh, the, the idea of identity and not or making sure that your identity isn't just tied up in, in being an athlete. So having stuff going on in your life that's outside of sport and making sure that you're taking care of that is what I would want in an athlete. So by well-rounded, you don't mean fat? Depends on the sport. <laughs> I, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot here about actually, and I'm going to throw out two things. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And that sounds like one of these twee statements that people will say. Hmm. But actually, if you look at how performance occurs, it is essentially made up of lots of little groups of of things reacting to things in a non-linear way. Um, so, for example, you might uh, have a muscle that is being trained, and then as that muscle is trained, that muscle uh, gets stronger, and then at a certain point, it breaks. So it's non-linear. It's not like just continually getting stronger until it's as strong as anything in the world it goes to a point of breaking like a bell curve so it's non-linear and i think like whether it's muscle strength or tendon strength or your psychological ability to cope under pressure a lot of the features that are present within biological systems are not react in a non-linear way and i i've used the analogy of like it's trying to like stacking pool balls up in a in some sort of like a if you can stack them all on top of each other that's what performance is when everything's perfectly balanced, but it's so finely balanced that any one thing can break. And it might be your hamstring, or it might be your ability to cope with the emotional demands, or it might be your, you know, your teammates' communication. So for me, performance is breaking down at certain points in your job is to try and identify where the where the points are breaking and strengthen up the points that are continuously breaking until you can create some sort of stable structure. And it's kind of like how a pyramid of sand. If you continually pour out sand, it'll keep reshaping and, and self-organize based off of how much it can support. That's kind of like an, an analogy for performance, but I don't like to use analogies because analogies can be misconstrued, but actually that analogy is based off complex systems and how you would stack together non-linear biological features that contribute towards performance. That would be my answer. Elliot, you're nodding and Pete, you look confused. I'm just, I was confused when you said that you don't like analogies because you use analogies about five times every minute. I know <laughs> people have told me this before. Um, do you know why I don't like analogies? You just said, cause they can be misconstrued. Well, yeah, but there's actually a research paper by Thibodeau about how, if I want to call crime a virus, then I'll be more likely to treat crime at the source of social deprivation and poverty and lack of opportunity. Whereas if I refer to crime as a beast, I'll be more likely to want to put people in jail and want to uh, treat it more harshly and have harsher penalties. So the metaphors by which we understand the world can shape our decision-making without us knowing. So that's Mm -hmm. why it's like somebody teaches you something and he teaches you a metaphor, that's dangerous. You need mm-hmm. to understand the science, but we can't understand the science because you only go a couple of layers deep until you actually understand the world by a metaphor. So to go down a big, big rabbit hole here, if you want, like how does electricity work? Any ideas? Right. So in my head, electricity is this little man in the copper wires passing along buckets of coal and throwing it on fire in the light bulb. I'm pretty sure I shouldn't be an electrician, but that's how I understand electricity. <laughs> 
So, like, you can only go so far <laughs> with your metaphors until you reach the rock bottom of, like, okay, there's energy moving about. There's not little men with buckets of coal in the copper wire throwing it on your light bulb. So, anyway, electrical services, give me a call. Hugh Gilmore, <laughs> I'll spark you up. So you're listening to the 80% Mental Podcast where you, our listeners, are taking over and asking the questions. Um, we're here with Elliot Newell uh, and obviously myself and Hugh. And our next question is from... I'm going to have to step oh, in here, Pete, am I? You are, yeah. Why not? Why am I stepping in, Pete? Well, because I, I'm unsure as to how to pronounce that. Give it a go. I'm going to say Mo Cree. Mo Cree. Cree. McCree. McCree. So McCree. it's Askilge, which means in Irish, uh, McCree translates as my heart. There you go. Yeah. So Graham McCree, Love of My Heart. It's a song about that. I can't remember the name of it though. Anyway, that's the extent of my Irish. Um, yeah, fair enough. The question is, so how much merit does the phrase hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard? have when it comes to competitors who want to become elite or professional funding injuries opportunities notwithstanding and then for children young people who also compete for fun is there evidence as yet suggest that with support they find their way to more serious competition as they have inner drive grit or is there any any benefit to what some coaches might call old school pushing beyond comfort zones that's at least three phds of work I would say yeah. Yeah. that's a big question. Should, should we take the first the first part first? Yeah. Hard work, so beats, hard work talent. beats talent. Yeah, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Is there any merit to that phrase uh, when it comes to competitors who want to become elite or professional? Go on here. Well, I would say that me and Pete work very hard and are completely talentless at this podcast and we are beating everybody out there. So thanks very much, listeners. Um, Elliot, <laughs> any thoughts? Uh, again, like, do you need one or the other? Um, it's both, right? Like, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, talent is is the price of entry. It's like it's your, your ticket to the dance. Uh, it doesn't mean you're going to get thrown to throw shapes on the dance floor. Like, I, I can, as a five foot ten guy, I can't, with all the will in the world, make it in the NBA. I, I don't think that would be, be possible. So, like, there are some bits, but it really does raise this question again about what is talent, because I can't separate talent from hard work. I might see some uh, gifts, and, and, and again, like we've mentioned David a couple of times, that Dave Collins and colleagues done some really good work on, on um, just separating that idea of kind of biological, physical kind of giftedness Whereas you take talent, it is the combination of that with the psychosocial stuff to, to work hard. So I don't, I don't see them as separate. Um, I also think you, you need both as well, because is there any examples of really, truly elite high performers that we would label as talented that don't work hard? Even the James Harden. <laughs> I'm just joking, James Harden, if you're listening. But you need to play some defense. 
But even the ones that make it look effortless, like Federer and Bolt, and like, it's almost a kind of like bit of an insult to the graft they've had to put in to get to where they are. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's one of the, it's one of those phrases, isn't it? That kind of sounds good in mm. principle. Um, that if you if you don't have talent and you work really 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 hard, you'll be more successful than somebody who has got loads of talent but just doesn't work hard. But I, I mean, I mean, again, you can kind of argue about what do we mean by talent, and we can kind of go down that route. But I guess, um, is it is it one of those phrases that makes talentless people feel better? Like, if you, well, no, but like, like if. You, if if you work hard, then you can, you know, you, you can take the spot, or you can kind of beat out people who who are really, really super talented, um, but don't work hard. And, and I'm not really convinced that that's true. I, I, again, I'm being kind of like pithy here. Like you said, there aren't athletes out there who, or talented athletes who don't work hard. Well, no, they must have worked hard to get where they want to be. I mean, right? a certain level of hard. Yeah, but but there, there are there are athletes out there who. I would suggest, you know, I watched I watched the NBA during the regular season and there are athletes who just dial it in from home every night until it gets to the playoffs. Is that working hard? I don't know. Well, actually, but, that might be working hard, Pete. I'm sorry to cut across you there. No, it's no, ter- ter- terrible skills as a psychologist to cut across somebody. But that might be working hard because they're going, if I put my effort in now, I might fatigue myself, expose myself to risk of injury and actually... Uh, end up then not being able to contribute to playoff performance. So one of the determinant characteristics of uh, field sports players who are highly skilled, they run less than players who have lower skill level because they don't have the ability to read the game as well. So if you're Mm. really good at reading the game, you'll actually cover less ground. So a common... Paul Scholes, Matt Letizia. Yeah, so a, a common misconception then is when managers come in and they go, Oh, look at Johnny there. He only ran four miles this game. He might have, mm. you know, done more passes and have more impact in those four miles compared to somebody who ran 11, like a headless chicken. So sure. actually, the skill is not necessarily about hard work. It's about knowing when to work hard and what to work hard at. So I think this, to me, it comes down to that whole thing of judgment. So maybe the, maybe the, and I, I, don't, I don't like the phrase working smart. But that's kind of what we're talking about here. So yeah, maybe the yeah, phrase yeah. is "smart work beats talent" when talent doesn't work smart rather than hard. Maybe that makes yeah. more sense. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not a big fan of pithy phrases like that any, in any respect. But uh, maybe that's what it is. Um, shall we? Shall we have a crack at the second part of the question? Yes. So it was about uh, children, young people who compete for fun. Is there any evidence to suggest that with support they find their way to more serious competition? Uh, as they have inner drive and grit? Or is there any benefit to what some coaches might call old school pushing beyond comfort zones? Within our EBT, the idea of the ability to withstand uh, and tolerate frustration, discomfort is of value. And I don't think anybody gets anywhere in life without the ability to cope with distress or discomfort. Like if it's worth doing, it's not going to be easy. I mean... So you do, we do need people who are tough and that sounds bad, but like if you're going to crumble at the difficulties at life, you're not going to get somewhere. So yes, I'm all for creating tough situations, creating adaptations, you know, let's callous up their hands and their souls, but also let's not 
forget the idea that we need to support them so that they can adapt to that. It's not about breaking them down completely. So I think there's a bit of a, a phrase of high challenge, high support is one of these things that is often said. So I have no, no issue with pushing people hard, providing they are on the boat with you and going to the same place you are. Um, another metaphor, sorry. <laughs> we don't have to have the same shared mental model, the same goal, but the path that we're both on has to overlap uh, for us to be working together, whether it's coach athlete or coach team. As long as for that period of time there's overlap, um, that's fine by me. Um, but yeah, let's toughen people up and work hard. That's what I say. Does it not always or almost always happen like that where, the, where kids start sport because it's fun and they play it because it's fun? I mean, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think the question is more about, you know, do, do kids who do that just kind of find their way to more serious levels of competition or do they, like, is there something within them that pushes them towards that or do they need that sort of external input coaches pushing them, like you say, and kind of putting them under pressure and callousing up their hands and their souls, which is a just incredible phrase. Um, you know, can they find their own way there or do they need that? I think is, is maybe the heart of the question. Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite hot personally in my coaching and my psych work on informed consent and, and permission. And like, that's the kid's choice, right? Like, uh, mm. you know, like part, part of the, the bit that we, we've got to be careful of is like, there's, there's, who's saying that hard work isn't fun? Who's saying that overcoming challenge isn't fun? So, you know, I would expect in almost all playful learning kids' sport environments that they've been set challenges and things to overcome. Like, there's, there's an inherent joy in that. Like, I, I guess I don't fully understand the question, if I'm honest. But um, mm. I, I think if, if the listener's interested in that, like, there's a whole ton of stuff on the development journeys of, of elite athletes. So... There's a really interesting one by Gorbin that looked at um, a whole load of athletes and they mapped them out. So they had like a very small percent of like unicorns that just went all the way through. But the majority of journeys were non-linear and had uh, at least two or three significant setback points uh, where people either regressed or, or stayed in a stagnant state before they moved on. So, um, mm. yeah, that whole Rocky Road idea is, is pretty well published. Right? I think the interesting thing about this is there's a lot of people get really bent out of shape about some of the stuff that goes on in sport. And that's fair enough. But of everything that I've done in sport, and I'm not in any way an exceptional athlete of any description, but I've played a number of sports and the reasonable enough levels that I'm happy with. And of all the difficulties that I ever faced, none of them were anywhere near the difficulties that I actually faced in life. I mean, since when is somebody in sport experiencing some sort of trauma that's bigger than what they face in life? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Like, there's, there's, <clears throat> there's some interesting research that looks at the athletes and that they found life trauma. So you look at the Great British Medalist Study, you look at some of the stuff that um, Masaka and Dave Fletcher have looked at in terms of incidences of life trauma, current health. But then we have other evidences like Neil McCarthy's Super Champs paper that found actually that the almost and the people that have got like a very good level of performance ended up having more incidences of trauma in their life. And the super champs, the repeat serial winners, had, had less. Um, so 
so it's all it's all a little bit unknown, but um, there's definitely a bit that points to the value of encountering challenge, finding ways to overcome, and um, if we pay attention to some of Dave Collins' work, it's around really accelerating the learning that happens in that when you prepare well, have a, a well thought out dose of challenge wherever possible, and then the reflection and learning that happens afterwards. Like uh, I've realised we've definitely jumped from kids' sport into probably stuff that's looked at people older, but I'm certainly not advocating that for the kids' sport. But um, I don't know whether that is old school coaching. I think um, I hear old school coaching a lot, like, but I don't know what that means. Like, I didn't grow up in the seventies. Like, did coaches just shout at people? I think, uh, yeah, I think it means just like throwing chairs at people and <laughs> uh, like. Is that is that not what you do as a lecturer until you had to go online? <laughs> no, but I did. You did throw chairs <laughs> I, at students. I, no, I didn't. I didn't throw chairs at students. But <laughs> one time, um, I was <laughs> it's just uh, one time. Okay, that is, it was just one time. Never did it again. I was uh, I was in a lecture, and we had to respond to student feedback. So students gave feedback on the module, right? And the, I I I don't mind saying they were saying like stupid stuff. Their feedback was dumb, right? And they were saying stuff like, oh, we don't want any nine o'clock lectures and we don't want any like five o'clock lectures. And they said, oh, we, have, we haven't been given any information on this and that. And it's like, well, you have because it's all in the module handbook. So like, I did a lecture when the first 15 minutes was me giving feedback on their feedback. And I walked into the lecture, didn't say a word, holding a golf club and just swinging it around, walking backwards and forwards for a good 10 minutes. <laughs> In fairness, in in fairness, I was doing a class straight after, which was a golf putting uh, lab class. So there was a reason that I had a golf club, but I just thought I'd just walk around just being menacing for 10 minutes and see what they did. <laughs> and that's how you and expose I, people to stress. Yeah. And then I told them that their feedback was dumb. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to throw in on top of this, right? I, I don't know how to follow that. I'm just going to just sidestep that. I don't know how to follow that at all. <laughs> but I'm going to sidestep that back to the actual question. Uh, and there's some interesting research on gamification. Gamification is essentially what computer boffins call learning. Um, so if you think about computer games, what happens? The You play the computer games, you go along, you collect all these little rewards. You're like, yay, little rewards. And then every so often you get a bigger reward. Uh, like a medium type reward and then every so often you get like a mega big bad reward and then you fight a boss and then you get another big reward so there's like incremental levels of reward from how people learn video games and what happens when you mess up in a video game you go back to the start again if you thought it was fun and you play because you want to and there's a lot of lessons can be taken from that in sport if you think of a coach like you know where's all the little rewards for the successes what are the bigger challenges? What are the bigger challenges again? What is the big massive challenge? Where's all the rewards? And I kind of go back to the start and play again because they want to. And I think that's interesting because in sport, it seems to be like this, get to that level. Now you're at that level. You can't go back. You can't go back to this playful, fun, kind of like little rewards and all that stuff. Maybe if coaches started thinking like, if this was a computer game, how would I set this up? We might have a lot more kids interested in sport. So, that's what I would say about that. 
I like that. I like that because if you think if you think about how computer games actually work, and this is me being a total nerd now, is that even if you get past like the big boss, the next stage is harder, but you don't start at the same level as what the big boss was. You start, you take a few steps back, and you kind of build up to it again. So even if you are advancing a level, even if you have kind of accomplished that really big challenge, like the next stage isn't to just progress from where you are. It's to just have a little step back and come back to the bits where you're just enjoying what you're doing and building up those little challenges again. So Um, is this why you brought in Tiger Woods in your next class, Pete? (laughs) Less said about about Tiger Woods, the better. (laughs) Um, let's move on because we are not very far into the questions and we've already been talking for like 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes. So, um, probably edit most of that stuff out that we've just been talking about. (laughs) 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 Our next question is from Nick Coley. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, I'd like to know, Nick says, what if any skills, interventions or programs that you've used with your clients have you used personally? Which have you found most useful and why do you feel they were useful? So none, none, none. <laughs> okay. Um, I can I can go first with this one if you want. Um, I, I think for me, uh, the first one would be getting into meditation and the idea of mindful acceptance of um, internal experiences, thoughts, feelings, sensations. I think it genuinely fundamentally changed my approach in the last few years that I played basketball, kind of accepting those unhelpful self-doubt type thoughts uh, rather than trying to battle them and kind of be relentlessly positive and um, just kind of accepting that self-talk as I was going through games. It made a, it made a real, a real difference uh, to me. Uh, the second one I would say was, was imagery. Uh, and I spent a good amount of time, using imagery to work on on shooting and I do this for like 15 20 minutes maybe before I left for practice I visualize like taking particular shots moving through the offenses uh, how I'd come off screens what I do against this defender or that defender and I, I probably it was only really the last few years of playing that I would really genuinely dedicate time to doing it and for me it, it genuinely well I think anyway that it made a difference to my performance um yeah just ask luke parker he'll tell you hugh yeah pete i'm interested too in what elliot's done elliot what have you done (laughs) (laughs) well i mean i always find the most effective interventions involves ears mouth and heart like can we talk can i listen can i care like those are just the things because the kind of context in which i find myself in in my practice is I I don't necessarily do the consultation stuff when people come and see me with a problem. Like most of my stuff is in the environment, getting alongside people, being part of the journey with them. So it's a slightly different context in which practice takes place. Um, so most of it is actually just being a um, being a source of support and um, a source of coaching. For people to make sense of the experiences that they're having um so i guess like when i'm in that kind of context it becomes mm. different and you discover problems and challenges and questions with people versus experiences that i've also had when i am the person that they go to and say that i've got a problem or i want to get better at this can you help me 
Um, it's less about that. So I find exactly like you, Pete, like I'm a big fan of the mindful approach. Um, I'm a big fan of imagery, um, self-talk, keywords, behavior cues. Um, an example recently, like client came back going, oh, this was just ridiculously effective. It's the most simple thing I've ever done. Like we just did a couple of breathing things. <laughs> like he's like, I need to control my mind. I was like, dude, you need to control your breath. Mm. <laughs> like we'll worry about your mind after. So he went back into bat and yeah, bat and performance was just different because there was more of a purposeful bit of breath work. So little things like that um, certainly linked to what I said before about perception and action. I find you can train your ability to gaze better and um, take scan um, and to pay attention to certain cues. And I think that's a, a certainly a trainable skill. We used to do that all the time in Canoe Slalom about you know, where on the water, where relative to the gate that you look um, in order to follow through kind of with your body and putting that movement. Um, and then probably the final thing would be getting really deliberate about performance planning and performance reviewing. Like, it's so much more than just rocking up, warm up, do the training, go home and rest. Like, if we're trying to accelerate performance, then we've got to find ways to be purposeful for that training, have psychological ways of making sure we get the most out of that training, and then just, you know, squeezing the sponge for all the learning that we can get. So, Hugh. Pete. You're, you're good at answers, right? Yeah. So, what's your answer? What skills, interventions, programs have you used with clients that you've used personally? Like, what have you found useful? Okay, so personally, Pete, I've used this thing called goal setting. Um, and it's kind of funny because, you know, people go, oh, God, smarter goals. No, I actually hate smarter goals. And there's a paper, which is something I say a lot of the times, uh, by Shepard, um, which talks about, will the real goals please stand up? Kind of like the Eminem song. So that's a good reason to read a paper. Um, I didn't know there was a rapper named after Sweets, but there is. Anyway, the point being that with goal setting, people uh, often go down the smarter route. But there's a thing called Saren Connolly, Sporting Body, Sporting Mind. And it's like a, a book from the 1980s or something. And it's got a really lovely goal setting technique in it. It's very simply spend five minutes, write down everything you want out of life. Spend five minutes, write down everything you want out of the next uh, five years. Spend five minutes, do the same for one year, do the same for six months, and go through that list of things. You'll find that after five minutes, people people are stuck after a minute. They write down everything they want out of life, marriage, kids, dog, Tyrannosaurus Rex, whatever it is. They write down all the things they want, and then they're stuck after a minute. You know, they've got like four things down. Like, yeah, it's all there, T-Rex and everything. And then they move on to one year and, and you know, the, the five year and the six months to do the same thing. And you prioritize it. You're only allowed to pick two things from each page that you've read on as A goals and two things as B goals and everything else as C goals. So then what you'll find is there's probably some sort of prioritization line between like what you need to do over the next six months over the next year. And I think this is where for me, goal setting falls flat in its face most of the time because people actually do goal setting in relation let's set a goal about a thing but it's not it's a goal about how you spend the entirety of your time in your life so you have to prioritize it along with getting your goddamn dishes done and cleaning your room so like 
you need to be able to prioritize. And that I think is the biggest skill set from that goal setting exercise that I learned. Um, the other thing that I think really works as an athlete, I've done lots of imagery, lots of pre-performance routine. That's solid stuff. Um, but I really like REBT. And when I was training in REBT, I was told by a class dude who trained me. Um, he said, don't, if somebody uses a therapy uh, on you, but they wouldn't use that therapy themselves, then you shouldn't be doing that. And I really like RIBT because like, I'll do it all myself. I'll, you know, I'll come up with a problem and I'll talk to my partner about it. And I'll be like, you know, the questions, ask me the questions. And the questions are, is there any evidence for what I believe? Is it helpful? What I believe? And is it logical? What I believe? And if I answer no to one of those questions, then my fundamental belief isn't actually helping me move towards my goal. So I have to then think about like, right, what needs challenged here? And quite often there's some absolute thinking going on where I maybe don't accept myself. I don't accept others. Or I don't let, accept my life circumstances. And you can pick that up when people say, oh, he should do that. They should do that. Or I should do this. And a, a really good way of picking that up is you're going to use the three F's in life, which are F me, F you, or F them, and F it. And if you find yourself saying that. I mean, that's four. But... That's actually, pardon? What? I said, I mean, that, that's four. He said the three Fs and then he said four things. Yeah, well, no, no, F you, F you and F them is the same thing because it's actually oh, okay, F, F others. Right, right, so F you singular, F you plural, right? Yeah, there could be oh, groups just... of people that you need to F. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. No, it's fine. You didn't break my train of thought at all. I'm perfectly composed because in this scenario, I'd be going F you, Pete, for taking me <laughs> apart like that. But actually, I'm not going to do that because I don't have any control over Pete. Pete's an individual human. So I can't say Pete should not interrupt me. I have to say I would prefer if Pete should not interrupt me. But if he does not, then I will be able to come back with a really witty remark and actually elucidate how RIBT fits in. And that's a big thing. Identify the shoulds related to the three Fs and then stick a butt at the end of your should and you can rip apart your fundamental belief. So, yeah. Get some REBT, rub that all over your lovely steak, and it'll taste a lot better. Or your life. I don't know. I'm yeah, I'm gonna move on. Stop. Edit. Cut. All those words. We're done. You are listening to the 80% mental podcast, and this is the listener takeover. You guys are asking the questions. Uh, we're here with Elliot Newell and our next question is from Lizzie Darville and the question is what sports psych stuff do you think is most helpful to us mortals to improve performance in competition sport work life so I I, I guess the, the kind of main part of this question is if you had a friend who said they wanted to improve x where would you get them to start uh Elliot what what would you say to this question if you had a friend who wanted to improve whatever where would you get them to to, to where would you get them to start? Um, I, see, I'm, I'm kind of torn. I either start really big or really small. So really big is like, why? Or uh, what's the point? <laughs> like that kind of big question, what's your why? Like, why, why would you do this? Um, I find people are really good at self-organizing around that. Um, 
if you if you have a question like what's your why might lead to other questions around like you know who does this serve what do i get out of it what would i lose by not doing it those kind of bigger questions that are really useful or if you're starting like really really small so for example if it was a friend talking about should i go for that job i'd probably go with the why questions if it's a friend saying about presentation at work tomorrow um i would probably start small and, and it's kind of two areas that i work on in, in um the small side of things is it's built around control so like right, what can you control and when you work out what you can control what's your best next step what's that just one next thing you can work on um that would make a difference because i often find that um it can get quite overwhelming um when you try and do like all of the performance like stuff for um to use the language mere mortals so like uh you know i don't i don't ever want to fix it because i'm thinking dude if you've got like a um if you've got a presentation tomorrow and you're just trying to figure this out now like we're not going to have any control over how that's going to go but what you might do is work out that you can control practicing once before you go to bed okay right do that if that's your next best step I, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, when I thought about this question, I was thinking more of the, the big things and, you know, my, my approach would be to, to ask why, you know, what's your why, why are you doing this? Goals are great. Everybody likes to set goals. Everybody loves smart goals, but, uh, I'd start with the why, why is it something that's important to you? You know, and then why is that important to you? Carrying on asking that question until we get to that fundamental value that that person is, is, is going after. And then it's a case of, okay, well, what actions can we take to commit to that? What small steps, what kind of goal setting can we do around that? So my, my first question that I do when I sit down with athletes, it's, it's not about what do you want to achieve? It's not about what do you want to get to? It's about who do you want to be? What kind of athlete do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? Okay, well, let's start there and then let's start committing to specific things you can do that's going to start moving you towards that thing. So I, I, I'm with you. I was thinking kind of big and, you know, it would be, well, what's the, what's the why behind that? What's the value that underpins what you're trying to, where you're trying to get to? Let's move on. We've got another question. Um, I like this one. This is a good sort of mid-session question and we'll do a sort of quick fire round here. So this is a question. I think this is another question from Johnny McPhee and I, I've kind of broken the rules by allowing, to, allowing him to have two questions, but I like this one. Greatest of all time. Chocolate bar. Hugh. Mars bar. Elliot. Boost. A boost. Ooh, oh, that's choice. a good choice. I like that. Yeah. Actually, oh, I want to see his rounds tonight. You want to change it to a boost? I, I do. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Shit. I'm indecisive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of all the questions, I didn't think this one was going to be the one that stumped you. I'm not good at answers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mine would be... Uh, I think mine would be a double decker, but a double decker from like 1985, not from now. <laughs> when it was massive and weighed four <laughs> yeah. kilos. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, greatest of all time, biscuit, Elliot. Uh, chocolate hobnob. Ch- strong biscuit, strong biscuit. Hugh? I'm, I'm going to go hard here and I don't give a damn. Jaffa cake. Oh, oh I mean... Why? To hell with your laws, to hell with your rules, Jaffa cakes all the way. Let's have some. I can't remember whether it's not a biscuit or a biscuit, so I 
I don't really care either. <laughs> it's only a biscuit if you dip it in a cup of tea. No one's dipping Jaffa cakes in a cup of tea. I could dip your cat in a cup of tea. Does that make a biscuit? <laughs> <laughs> that might be the weirdest thing anyone's ever said to me. Okay, that's the trailer. Um, <laughs> great, greatest of all time, sweets. At the risk of sounding 80 years old, Murray Mints or Werther's original. <laughs> Murray Mints? <laughs> <laughs> Murray Mints? Who are you? My <laughs> granddad. That's you the know. trailer. <laughs> I've got to be honest, of all the things... Of all the sweets, that's not what I was expecting it to come out with. Fucking <laughs> Murray Mints. Do they even still exist? Classic. Oh, I'm seriously, there's got to be someone out there listening to this going, yes, Elliot, I'm on that bus with you, mate. I'm all in on Murray Mints. Yeah, so Captain Tom Moore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Right. I'm going to go with Bomb Bombs. Bomb Bombs, that's it. Nice and basic. Get them in. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm taking a piss, but I don't even, I haven't even really thought of an answer to this question. Um, you, you're bog standard chocolate, Claire. Uh, solid, just, what do you mean? Uh, uh, it's a no. solid sweet. It's a chocolate, it's Claire. solid. It breaks your bloody teeth. Well, you just get better teeth then. Uh, <laughs> greatest of all time, crisps. Hugh, I'm going to go with you first this time. Tito. Cheese and onion or prawn cocktail, but the Tato ones from Northern Ireland, um, just to be exactly precise. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, what's 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 good about them? What's different about them to say your uh, bog standard walkers or whatever other crisps are available? The taste. <laughs> what did you want me to say? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think what he really wanted you to say was the potatoes. Become a free free haircut, like what? what, what do you know? Well, you're the one that specified a particular brand, so like, surely you must have a reason for that. It's yeah, not, it's it not a ridiculous question, is it? Elliot, greatest of all time, crisps. I'm going Walker's Max Paprika. That's a good shout. I'm going with uh, Salt and Vinegar McCoys. That's a good shout. What? Okay, hold on. What about Hunky Dory's <clears throat> Buffalo? They're pretty heavy. I like them. I don't know what that is. Hunky Dory's you buffalo. Said words there. No. Have you never had Hunky Dory's buffalo flavor crisps? No. Have you just made them up? Nope. Uh, I think again That's another good, another good crisp. Do you know what's good about them? The taste. No, <laughs> m- moving on. I'm ninety percent sure that that's made up, and I'm fascinated how when he said to himself, "I'm gonna make up some crisps," he come up with Hunky Dory buffalo. <laughs> I mean, that's a thought experiment in itself, isn't it, right? There's got to be someone out there that's determining a personality not, based on that. I've just got visions of our listeners, like, Googling hunky-dory buffalo <laughs> and seeing what comes up. So, for all our listeners who are now Googling hunky-dory's buffalo crisps, I I honestly got if these don't exist, I must be in a state of psychosis throughout my entire secondary school life. Because they are wonderful, good crisps. Well, get it on your phones. Google. Google. The, the, the guys are on their phones now, Googling. You know what their faces are going to look like? <laughs> oh, my God. I actually exist. That's the thing. That is, wow. 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 It costs £2.50 a bag. 
off eBay. Don't buy crisps off eBay. I mean, there must be antique <laughs> ones or something. Like well, antique crisps. That's not where you buy crisps. <laughs> oh, you could also get them in Asda, apparently. Interesting. Um, I learned today. Well, if that's one thing that we've learned from this podcast, then we've done a good job. Greatest of all, (laughs) greatest of all time, beer. I think it's impossible to answer this, but you could try. Mm. I just love them all. Oh, there must be there must be one beer that you that you would if you know if you were like if you in a, in a uh, supermarket or even in a pub, all right? What would you what would you choose? Well, what would you? I would you say Bud because I am currently drinking Bud. Fair, fair enough, Hugh. The best beer that you can have is the one that you have with friends. So the one I'm having right now isn't that cheesy. Do you like that? Uh, That's the answer. Where are your friends? <laughs> <laughs> that is brutal. That is brutal. It's completely unfair and uncalled for. My God. After, all the effort I put in for the intro and everything, you're just like, oh, my God. Wow. I'm, I'm going to complain oh, to you, but I'm going to complain to your employer about you. Mine, mine would be... Um, the Mexican cake stout that I drank the other week when we recorded the uh, Coaching Discourse podcast because that was the most beautiful thing I've ever tasted in my life. Uh, and if Wonder Beyond Brewery want to send me a case of it, that's Wonder Beyond Brewery. <laughs> want to send me a case of La Adelita Mexican cake stout, then please get in touch uh, on the website or... Uh, on our Twitter. I don't know if this is a highlight or a lowlight of the show. I, I, well, look, if, if they want to send me some beer, just for mentioning how amazing it was several times in a row uh, and uh, telling everybody, you know, to go and get some, then I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, Can I have some if you get some? Uh, yeah. Don't see why not. We're nice. friends. Um, okay. So next question. None for Elliot. All right, so the next question that we've got from our list, this one's from uh, Luke Parker on Instagram. Go on, Hugh. So Luke Parker has asked, what is the zone and how do you work on getting your athletes in the zone? Unfortunately, I've Googled this, and the zone is a nightclub in Red Ruth, Cornwall, that closed down in 2018. So unfortunately, your athletes can't get into the zone. Do you know what's interesting? (laughs) That the zone is also a nightclub in Rotherham, which closed down. uh, Well, I assume it closed down. (laughs) Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, we, we used to go there after games when I used to play for Mansfield back in, uh, back in the day and we used to go, we used to go to the zone in Rotherham and it's possibly the worst place on earth. So there we are. <laughs> Pretty sure it closed down several years ago. <laughs> they can't get in the zone or they shouldn't have any desire to go to the zone. No. Okay. We hear about it all the time and we hear about the zone, uh, all the time. For our listeners who, who aren't quite sure, first of all, what is it? What, what, what do we mean when we talk about athletes being in the zone? Uh, Elliot, I'm sure you've got some thoughts here. Yeah, it's one of these kind of um, 
potentially quite fluffy, abstract things. Um, I know when I work with with athletes on this kind of stuff, if they bring that kind of language, then yeah, great. But basically, what I'm trying to do is when we talk about the zone, we're talking about what is the most helpful cognitive, emotional state for you to be in to perform at your best. It's interesting how Elliot described it there because there's this idea that trying to get into it is also how to not get in. It's kind of like if you want to go to one of these nightclubs, you would maybe try to get in. You might, if you're underage, get a fake ID. We might try and dress in a certain way. But like the bouncers will spot that and they'll say, no, you're not getting in because you're trying to get in. That Maybe that didn't happen in Mad's feet. I don't know. But That was full of 15-year-olds. <laughs> well, they didn't try to get in. They got a, Maybe they just acted adult-like as opposed to getting a fake ID. Right, right. But the point being that trying to get into a nightclub is like trying to get into the zone. You don't try to get in. You have to focus on what you want to do. And what you want to do is actually focus on your process of, I'm going out for with friends. I'm going out to have some fun. This will be entertaining and let's explore it. And let's just see what happens. And I think if you try to force yourself into the zone in sport, where you're like, I need to get into this mental state, you're leading yourself down a path that actually isn't going to get you into the zone because you're focusing on the outcome. It's kind of like saying, be happy to somebody. Like you can't be happy because as soon as you search for happiness, you become unhappy because you could be happier. And it's more so like, well, what do you do when you want to do happy? You might go out and play around the golf. You might go out and hang out with friends. You, you do happy the same way you do the zone. So what is it when you do your performance? So that's what I would say. If you want to get help somebody have better performance, ask them what it is they do that they enjoy and then say, go do that. And that's the quickest way into the zone. So we're talking about getting into a flow state, really, aren't we? Mm. Being completely immersed in what you're doing, isn't it? And just completely absorbed to the point that time sort of falls away and you know self-consciousness disappears and you're just kind of fully, fully immersed in exactly what you're doing. And you know, you're, you're saying that trying to achieve that you're not going to you just need to kind of let it happen and i guess if you're you're thinking about how you how you do that well like you say you can't try and do it but you can put yourself in circumstances and situations where it's more likely to happen so the idea is that we find ourselves or we put ourselves in environments where we need a high level of uh, skill but the level of challenge is pretty high as well so it's kind of just on the brink of our capabilities so High skill, high challenge, that's kind of the, 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 the type of situation where flow is more likely to, to happen. Have, you, have, have either of you two ever experienced that as athletes? To be honest, I probably get it now in more of the recreational stuff I do, like going out for a run or, or kayaking or something like that. Um, I think, Pete, like I actually get it during this podcast because I'm in the zone with my answers. But no, in, in all seriousness, though, I think uh, if you look at the work of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi and his book on flow, he actually talks about how whenever you go out and you chat with friends and, you know, you go to a music gig or you, you have this social occasion, there's like a set of rules of conduct. And you know this because like somebody will make a joke, somebody else will make a joke that builds on that, somebody else will say something that's related to that. And there's this conversation that overtakes the space. And you know when you've said something that's slightly outside the conversation and you know when you bring it back into that conversation. 
And he talks about how getting engaged in that type of situation can become a state of flow and you see that time actually flies through. Um, so I think there's states of flow in all walks of life. So going out with good friends and having a good chat and a beer and relaxing is a state of flow. Within sport, Like I think there's also a, a related phenomenon called runner's high, which I've experienced where like you're out for a run and if you're a regular runner, you end up not really recollecting where you've ran from and you go from like blip you're three miles ahead blip you're three miles ahead and your consciousness only comes back in and i remember one time i was actually in a sense it was quite scary because i was like running along and then i got this sensation of this like massive gust of wind and then for whatever really reason i realized that not only had i felt the massive gust of wind but the time it had passed me, it had gone out of sight because it was windy country roads. But a big lorry had just gone past me and sort of like brought me back into like, oh, you're running the roads. Yeah, things like that have happened before. Um, but I also think it, like within psych sessions, like if you can get, you know, if you've if you've done a lot of hours, I think actual psych sessions can be quite flow like because you get into the state of knowing maybe what they might say next and how you know you've got a couple of options kind of like a chess game because that's what a psych consultation is it's like what's your next move what's their next move and how are you going to respond to that so again i just experienced states of flow within conversations in psych which is quite cool probably also important to recognize that, that you know we talk about those zones but there's multiple zones like i've worked with the same athlete different events creating a vision for the type of mindset that's going to be most conducive to that performance and i like the recommendation to not go chase it i wonder if what we try to take control of is the way that we want to show up and if flow happens then what a great experience that is but equally if flow doesn't happen um again what a great experience but just a just a different one Well, if you uh, if you're still with us, you're listening to Hugh and Pete and our guest Elliot Newell on the Eighty Percent Mental Podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on some of these questions. This is our listener takeover episode where you are asking the questions, uh, and we'd love to hear what you think. So you can get in touch via our website, eightypercentmental.com, or you can tweet us at EPM Podcast. We're also on Instagram at Eighty Percent Mental. Again, Eighty Percent Mental is all words. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. So our next question uh, is from Caroline M. Hughes on Instagram. And she asks, how do you start a conversation with an athlete about nerves? Okay, so nerves, right. Actually, do you know what you could do, Pete? I would go back and look at what Josie Perry and Joe Davies talked about in one of our previous ep- episodes about dealing with anxiety, because anxiety is also a, a synonym of the term nerves. But essentially... If you want to get down to the basics of it, nerves is no different from excitement um, other than the cognition. So somebody might be having the idea that they are somatically uh, excited where they physically feel their heartbeat or where they cognitively might feel nerves where they're thinking, oh no, I'm nervous. So I think in both cases, something what Elliot mentioned earlier was actually just taking a deep breath and a couple of deep breaths is a really good way to combat that. And I would talk to them about how when they breathe, they they actually reduce their ability to be nervous. And specifically, there's research on how when you breathe in through your nose, that down-regulates your hypothalamus and and causes you then to uh, reduce your ability to be in that fright, fright, 
fight, fight, flight, or freeze stage. I'm not getting that, am I? It's like three Fs or it something. It was close enough. People know what you mean. You didn't hear it. You was fast. And if you think about this, right, I want listeners, scary thought, but I want you to imagine that you're at home at night and then wah, I jump out of your wardrobe and shout, boo. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to go <gasps> big, deep mouth breath. And actually, the research shows that if you do a big, deep mouth breath like that, um, that induces like an upregulation of the hypothalamus and actually increases learning because whenever you do that, that uh, indicates that you've, you're in a state of shock and there's some sort of surprise that you should go, oh, no, this is danger. So your brain actually remembers more when you go <gasps> big, deep in breath through the mouth, but then obviously through the nose, nice, nice and slow regulates your hypothalamus so that's what i would talk about with people with nerves i don't know elliot any thoughts on that so so just to jump in there what you're saying here is that when you hide in someone's wardrobe and jump out at them in the middle of the night with your hunky dory buffalo crisps they should breathe in through their nose rather than through their mouth no if they breathe in through the nose they're in a state of shock but if they breathe in through, no, if they breathe in through the mouth, they're in a state of shock of like, oh, this is terrible. Whereas if they breathe in through the nose, like. They get the delicious smell of hunky dory buffalo crisps. It's a calming state through the nose. That's what I said in fairness. I said that the right way around. Yeah. I, I tell you what, I've, I've done that annoying thing again where someone's asked a question and my first instinct is to ask a question. I'm like, why would you have to start the conversation? Why? You know, that sounds like that's on your terms. Um, okay, well, I mean, uh, let's let's let's, ima- let's imagine a situation where you clearly can see that an athlete is experiencing nerves or anxiety or self doubt or whatever, but they're not coming to you as the psychologist, or they're not kind of speaking about it. They're not dealing with it. Like in that situation, maybe you might have to, or, or maybe you might want to, not have to, um, initiate a conversation about it. Um, let's kind of put ourselves in that scenario. Like, how might you go about doing that? Mm. Or, or would you go? Or would you do that? I don't think I would. You know, like I, I've been in that situation. A bit. It kind of feels like you're putting a superhero cape on and coming to save the day, but nobody's asked you to. Mm. I always think what you've always got in your back pocket, whether you're a psych or anyone else in your environment, you've got the "how are you?" question. Um, you've got the. How was that experience for you? Because I'm presuming if you're there watching it, you're part of the environment, you might not like it might probably won't be a weird conversation for the athletes to have. I've always taken quite an exploratory counseling approach to conversations. So like, I, I definitely wait for doors to open um, and requests to be made before coming in with I'll tell you what you need. You need me to teach you how to breathe. That's how that's sure. that better. Yeah. Of course, Hugh, Hugh, you have some thoughts here, yeah? Yeah. Actually, I've just realized I jumped into a bit of a monologue about science. Don't ask the question about nerves. Ask the question about calm. Hey, let's talk about you, about being calm, composed, and under control. What does that look like? And go from there. There you are. That's mm-hmm. your answer. Oh, so the last bit on that is like, because I guess the how are you bit can be a little bit, um, it can lead to closed doors. But what you can always do, if you do want to force it a little bit, is... Um, do the I notice thing where you, you know you can say well, I notice that and then you own it you own your perception of anxiety rather than saying hey you were dead anxious it's about asking permission isn't it with those types of conversations mm-hmm. you know if it's okay with you I've, I've got an observation do you mind if I share that with you yeah 
and then you're kind of getting the permission from the athlete say i i noticed that during this performance this was going on like is this something that we maybe want to kind of have a chat about like how how was that for you next question is from elliot sharp uh, and this was on twitter and elliot says what are the biggest restraints on performance at the elite level Hugh, I know you've got some some thoughts on this yeah, one. Yeah, do you know, I, I think what's really interesting here is that what, at elite level, there's an awful lot of differences between, I mean, Elliot's talked about Narit, not Elliot Sharp, but Elliot Newell, our guest here. Wonderful, follow him on Twitter. He's, he's amazing. He's really good. Anyway, the biggest thing about issues at elite level, like there's a lot of stuff about narratives in terms of what do we believe about that athlete? What do we believe about their story, their backstory? How does the coaches understand them? How do you... How do you understand them as a sports sports psych? Um, how does the parents understand them, and, and how do they understand themselves? And I think one of the things that continually occurs is actually uh, personality profiling, where we end up, you know, with some personality profile which is, is is useful to an extent in that if you use something that's based off the Big Five, where there's like openness, extroversion, neuroticism, um, agreeableness, and I don't know if that's five, but the acronym is OCEAN and you can look it up. But if you use something based off the big five, that's good. I think the NEO is good. But within elite sport, there's a lot of these Mickey Mouse approaches. and I've even seen ones that are based, based off uh, birds, believe it or not. Like, are you an owl? Are you an eagle? Are you some magical feathered dolphin? You know, whatever it is. But the, the point is that there's a number of these things and they're based off Jungian typology um like myers briggs etc and there's a lot of them that go around the idea of like different colors and again whenever we label people across different colors the idea is that we label people in in domains or boxes across four quadrants is a bit of a problem because if you're going to label somebody as yellow blue red purple magenta or whatever you're actually creating a box for them to fit into and then that's a label that you try and understand them but there'd be no other characteristic in sport. You wouldn't turn around and go, you're a type two fiber, uh, therefore X or therefore Y. You would, you know, you wouldn't take any other characteristic, whether it be their height, their weight, their any other sort of identity, and put it into four different boxes and place them in it. Um, so I think one of the things that limits uh, performance on elite level is limited understanding of athletes based on categories or narratives that are incomplete. Cool. Elliot, do you have any thoughts on this or should we just crack on with the next yeah. question? So I think it's a really good question, Elliot. There's four things for me. Um, what what constrains performance at any level? Fear, low well-being, lack of meaning, and poor learning loops. So I, I think, Elliot, three of those things were, were, were pretty clear. If you could just maybe explain the last one, the, the learning loops. So um, there's a vision of high-performance environments from the outside looking in that they're just like the epitome of everything humans are capable of. But actually, it's a lot of just sewing shit together and dealing with stuff as it happens, uh, which is its own version of incredible. But um, there is so much intensity around do, do, do. There is an absolute worship of planning, but there are very, very poor processes not about reviewing people love a review and review all day long <laughs> but nobody learns <laughs> as effectively as they could do like do 
people have conversations around what did we learn from that experience what does that mean moving forward what have we learn about how we do our work together what do we learn about our people what have we learn about performance a key characteristic of high performance is continuous learning but it's funny how little that tends to happen when people choose to prioritize doing stuff that that i think that's fantastic that rings true for me in academia um lots and lots and lots of reviewing not quite as much actually learning from those experiences and i guess that's probably the same in a lot of different environments so i really like that answer there um next question is from instagram and this is somebody who uh, wanted to to stay anonymous it's a bit of a long one so i'll read out the scenario and see if you guys have any thoughts on it so in a an amateur setting how do you get coaches and players, perhaps of an older generation and viewpoint, to maybe change their approach to the culture of a team uh, and being mentally ready for games and training in a situation where you maybe haven't necessarily got professional resources? So there's no sports psych, there's no um, other things that you might have. The question says, gone are the days of training through fear of fitness and or just roaring, shouting before a game to get an emotional response. Uh, younger men don't buy into that now, uh, and a different approach is needed. I'd personally like to see my own team environment drive home that our season is about performance and enjoyment, and if you enjoy what you're doing and don't have fear of making a mistake, this will translate to performance on and off the pitch. So I think this is a question about how you perhaps convince people of an older generation who are maybe used to that sort of Mike Bassett hairdryer shouting rah, rah, rah type uh, uh, way of getting people up for a game and more about, okay, well, how do we perform without fear? Uh, how do we enjoy what we're doing? And actually performance comes from an environment like that. Um, how, 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 do you, how do you do that? Uh, any, any thoughts, any, any ideas? Well, I suppose like, I mean, there's no need for this to be an anonymous question. So like Eddie Jones, like it's perfectly fine um, to, to talk about these things. Um, I think the, the thing is that if you ask good questions, you can get good answers. And in terms of getting people up for a game or getting people emotionally engaged, it's perfectly fine to be emotionally engaged. It's perfectly fine to be psyched out of your head to the point where you're ready to go through brick walls, I mean, especially in rugby, like it's a contact sport. Um, and, you know, I think in that scenario, it is like you need to commit, you need to go in full force and you need to take the hit and give the hit. So the question really is, is like, are you prepared to do this? How do you not want to do, do this? How do you want to do this? And then what can you do? to get yourself closer to the way that you want to play. And if you ask all those questions to an athlete, they're going to come out with answers that say like, well, I need, just need to commit to it and go through a brick wall. And the point I think is that there's hesitation about perfectionism. And your job is as a coach is to say, look, I don't care if you make mistakes. I care if you don't commit to what you're doing. So if you commit to an action and you make the wrong action, but you're 100% committed, that's fine because you're not going to get hurt in a tackle if you're 100% committed and you're not you're not going to have that big a negative impact if you're 100% committed because the other person on the other end is going to know that you're there and that's a good thing in my book whereas 
if you're hesitant trying to be perfect and trying to like be precise about these things, you know, you're in a state of overthinking what you do. So my question is, as a coach, like what questions do you need to ask? And and in very simply, in my book, a simple skill for motivational interviewing is creating discrepancy. How do you want to be? How do you not want to be? What do you need to do to get to where you want to be? And then very quickly, you'll find boys are ready to go through brick walls because that's the right thing to do. And that's the right way to be. And Eddie, best of luck in your World Cup campaign. Elliot, have you got any any thoughts on this? Well, I just, I just wonder there's a lot of kind of like looking at something from a deficit lens there. And I just wonder about what would change in your perspective if you believe that everybody was doing the best they could with what they've got. And what could you learn from older people? And how might you share what works and what doesn't work for you? You know, be brave enough to have that conversation around like, okay, look, I see you really trying to, to motivate me. Um, but like, I'm Gen Z, I don't get motivated by that stuff. <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> Definitely don't say that. But be like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. But, you know, if that's your intention, let me talk to you about ways that I think might, might actually be better. Um, so it's yeah. coming at it from the perspective that shouting and trying to get an emotional response and trying to get people, it's coming from the perspective that that's inherently a bad thing, whereas actually it's its potentially not. There are maybe some positives or some things that we can take from that, some things that might work for some people that maybe don't work for other people, but it's about having those conversations and, and being able to have those conversations honestly. And I guess that comes back to Hugh's point, which was just knowing how to ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. What is it that you need in order to perform well? And you're probably going to get a whole range of different answers from different people in your team, from coaches as well as from players. Pete, you've been playing basketball for years. Um, You're bound to have been experiences where you're kind of thinking, you know, that player like Todd Cawthorn, whatever you call his name from episode, whatever it was back in the day. (laughs) But like he's bound to be a slacker. I've listened to what he said in the podcast. Um, Like how would you go about interacting with your teammates as a player? Um, Because you're a psych and you've been a player. Like is there anything that you've done that has been influential, improved performance or made it worse? Do you you know what? It's, It's about knowing the people who you're working with. And if you take the time to get to know them and understand their tendencies and understand what they need, then, you know, there isn't a one size fits all. There isn't a, you can go into a changing room and give a rousing speech trying to get people fired up for a game, but some people aren't going to buy into that. But if you know that, then you approach them slightly differently. You, you just need to treat people like individuals and, and, and learning what works for some people and what doesn't work for some people. I mean, it sounds like really straightforward and, and that's because it is. It's just treating people like they're actual people and not one homogenous group that you can just shout at and expect them to perform well. Uh, and I'm the same. I was, I, it, it never worked for me. Having somebody yell and scream at me, that just didn't motivate me. I was always preferred to be just like calm and chill and, you know, I used to, enjoy warm-ups i used to have a laugh and if i wasn't laughing during a warm-up and joking and messing around then um then i wasn't i wasn't going to play well and some people would look at that and think oh he's not taking it seriously he's slacking he's but that that's what works for me you know and and having a coach that understands that those, those sort of individual tendencies i think is is really important so just get to know the people that you're playing with get to know the people that you're working with know your people know your people know your people
Okay, next question then. Next question is from, is it, a, is it from our number one fan, Hugh? It is our number one fan, and I am pleased to announce Dr. Laura Martinelli. We should get Laura on. Sorry, Dr. Martinelli on. We should get Dr. Martinelli on uh, because like, she's our number one fan. Anyway, our question from Dr. Laura Martinelli is, can sports psychologists claim that they enhance performance? No. Sports psychologists can't claim that they enhance performance because there's just too many factors involved in performance. Next question. Uh, false. Sports psychologists can claim that they enhance performance because they've spent X amount of the, their years reading research papers about how to enhance performance. They go off and train through an accreditation process. They develop skills and abilities which are used to enhance performance and therefore they enhance performance Um and they develop the skills to do that. Therefore, they can enhance performance and they could enhance performance. Can they claim that they do all the time? No, because sometimes they might do a bad job. In the same way that you would ring a brick layer to come out, lay some bricks and build a wall, um, he may come out or she may come out to build that wall for you. And they may not lay some brick to build the wall. They may be a brick licker and they may lick the brick instead and build a crap wall, which is essentially non-functional. And you might then need somebody else to come out. And that the reason they might be build a non-functional wall that doesn't work might be because of your context in that there isn't good foundations or there are other things that affect the ability of that wall to be laid, uh, such as supply of materials, commitment from the owner, payment from the owner, and all other things which affect the laying of the brick. So my thing would be that we are the same as bricklayers. We can do our job. We have the ability to do our job. Our job is to enhance performance. We can do that. But in some contexts, there may not be the appropriate situation whereby performance is enhanced because of other factors. Or you may also just have hired a bad bricklicker, bricklayer, or sports psychologist. That would be my thoughts on that, Pete. It's a bit of a controversial topic. Sure, let's have it out. Elliot, you've got the right answer. <laughs> I don't know if I've got the right answer. I'm just mulling over uh, whether or not sports psychologists might invest some time in reflecting on the anxiety they have that's driving that question. So I, I kind of lean into what a lot of you said there, Hugh. I think um, there, was, there was training, there was skill, there was expertise in evidence-based methods and strategies and skill development. But... Um, yeah, I'm just kind of really curious as to why someone would be so desperate to evidence that they enhance performance. Um, I, I've never seen it more than a contributive factor. Um, you are you are part of something. It just speaks to a really uh, certain kind of um, ontological and epistemological position around like what it is that we do as, as practitioners and professionals. And uh, if you're seeking a clear-cut, evidence-based, nice straight line that can take your intervention to, to performance impact, then I really wonder whether you'll ever find that. Um, whereas if we're able to embrace something that is non-linear, complex and, and dynamic and recognise our contribution to the overall effort, collective effort, in enhancing performance, then... Um, 
I wonder if that might be a more, more fruitful way to go. And, and to be honest with you, this is the exact reason why I got out of consulting because I didn't think I could sit there one-to-one and do six weeks of CBT and improve someone's performance as much as I could do getting a job in a sport and being there day-to-day and you know, working it all out collectively with coaches, practitioners and athletes. And, and I think, Elliot, that's why I was on the – that's why I was so quick to say no we can't claim that we enhance performance because as I said, there's so many other factors. It's a really complex pathway between what a sports psychologist will do sitting down with an athlete and their performance, their ultimate performance on the pitch or on the field or whatever. So I think, you know, to to put that question in context, there's um, a couple of follow-up questions. And this is uh, the idea that, you know, um, mental coaches, thought wizards, mind gurus are doing better than sports psychologists so you know the 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 other questions that have come in should sports psychs be more aggressive in their marketing um so i guess that kind of puts that can we claim we enhance performance question into a bit more context i don't know if that changes your thoughts or or if you have any additional thoughts based on based on that hugh yeah so a sports psychologist who's been through the process and has hcpc accreditation is as qualified as a clinical psychologist within their domain. So you're a sports psychologist, you work in sport, you enhance performance in sport, you're a clinical psychologist, you enhance mental well-being within a clinical setting. Are we really going to say that clinical psychologists can't claim to enhance, enhance a person's mental well-being? I don't think so. I don't think there's a person's going to... But gonna... is that the same as performance? Well, it is because well-being is just the same as performance. It's just a different bit of the spectrum. It's just slightly further along or slightly, you know, depending on how you, you view it. So m- my view here is that if if I want to have a, a, a decent opinion on the view in this, and I realize that I'm about to express opinions that are somewhat controversial, and I don't care. That's not like you. No, I don't care. And it is not like me because I'm normally <laughs> nice and placid and, and wonderful to work with. Um, but the, the point being that... Um, are we saying that CBT, are we saying that clinical psychology is not effective and can't claim to be effective when actually on the whole, CBT and clinical psychology creates an effect of around 60% um, in, in terms of performance? If you look at Wampole 2015 and look at the common factors approach, um, you can see what things determine the outcomes of performance. So I think we can say that we do impact performance. Uh, the the difficulty isn't how you market it. I, we can't say that because I have helped Johnny jump five meters ten through psychology, I can help Susie run a sub two hour marathon. That that's a stretch. So it's how do you actually market it effectively, where you're being honest about your skills. So I can help reduce your anxiety. I can help increase your confidence. I can help inform your shared mentor model. I can help you set goals. Uh, I can help you feel less stressed about your training process. I can help you understand the idea that we're all going to die on this planet and have an existential crisis at some point is, you know, just part of life. You know, the ex- exploration of these issues is part and parcel of increasing performance, and it's fine to discuss it with an athlete, and it's just fine to say that they contribute to performance. I think the issue is, like, how much you claim. In the same way, the bricklayer can't say, look, I'll come and lay this magic golden brick and you'll live in a castle. 
that's lies. You, you want to make sure that your claims are accurate and based within the evidence and information. You can't mislead people. You can't be unethical. And again, going back to that, like one of the things that these mind gurus, mental coaches, NLP practitioners, and outright charlatans do is they'll say, I helped uh, Bobby McGee do whatever. And, you know, the thing is that I can do that for you. That's wrong. This idea of, you know, because I helped a person is good. Like, I'm sure I've helped somebody. or So I'm sure I've worked with people who've won medals, right? 100%. I don't know if I've actually helped their performance. Honest truth, as a sports psych, I'm sitting there going like, did I actually help the performance? Or did I just listen to them a bit? And then they decided themselves they were going to do the same thing they were going to do. Um, and I could say I helped that person with a medal. I, I don't know if that's true. From what you were saying there, like I don't see how you're disagreeing with me because you're saying that you can claim to enhance like athletes' ability to deal with like anxiety or you can uh, help them to set appropriate goals or this, that, and the other. But it, it seems like you're actually agreeing with me that you can't really claim to enhance performance because you don't really know whether what you did enhanced their performance or not. So the original question was, can they claim to enhance performance? And it seems like you're actually saying that you can't do that. Is well, that, actually, is that wrong? Am I, am I your wrong? answer was you said no. You yeah. can't claim that you enhance performance. Well, no, you can claim that you can, but I'd, I'd say that that would be a false claim. Oh, so my 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 response would be working with me can enhance your performance because I have the skills to help you enhance your performance. And I would also then put... Okay, I, yeah, I see that. Yeah. And I would also put back to you that uh, I cannot enhance your performance I can help you enhance your performance because it's not me that makes you better. It's you that makes you better, but you use me to help you make you better. Slight nuance there, but the answer okay. is definitely yeah, no, that, not that, no. that, Yeah, okay. I, 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 I take that. Um, Elliot, you're, you're the guest here, and me and Hugh have just been sort of rambling on there for a while. Uh, have, you, have you got any thoughts on this? Can, can a sports psychologist claim to enhance performance? Yeah, I just I just can't see a version of events where they don't. Like, no. uh, what are you doing? <laughs> but of course, there is there is absolutely unequivocally a mental side of performance. There's a mental component to getting good. There is a mental component to living a life of being a high performer, and there's a mental component of delivering the goods on the day under pressure. And the sports psychologist's role is to help connect athletes to that mental side of the parts of their life and their performance and to use their expertise to make sense of and connect athletes with the right content, with the right uh, skills at the right time in the right way that they can then improve the mental side of their performance. So again, we come back to this desire to, and again, I genuinely think it comes from an anxiety that's just kind of inherent in the profession that if we're going to prove our worth, we have to absolutely dislocate our mental component from everything else and just mm -hmm. shine a light on that and show how amazing it is. There is no performance without physical body. There is no performance without technical, tactical, coaching, context, environment. You're just adding your bit. <laughs> and if you add your bit well, the mental side of performance can be delivered in a way that allows the athlete to deliver the goods. And I just, yeah, I'll claim it all day long. 
um, and I will claim it um, armed around all the other people that helped contribute to that because I've got no desire to say it was a psychological thing, it was a psychologist thing that was the significant and only factor in that performance. So I think this is about semantics really, isn't it? It's can you claim to enhance performance? Yes, but only in a complex only in the context of a really complex system rather than mm. it being yeah i've i as a psychologist have made you go out and win a gold medal and i think that's perhaps that at the heart of this question um mm. you know that there are perhaps people out there who are claiming ah. that you know as a psychologist yeah i can make you run faster well you, well, you can't like <laughs> you just can't do that. Uh, Hugh, what, what, what are you saying? What are you saying? Pete, I'd like to say that if any of our listeners would like to follow Elliot, the details will be in the podcast description and they should check him out and get a nice, lovely performance boost or as I like to call it, a performance hug. But the point is that people can enhance their performance and psychology can and help you enhance your performance. And there's an idea that... I think it's proliferated by academics who are caught up, and no offense, Pete, I know you're an academic, but you obviously practice as well. But I think there's an idea that academics get caught up in ethical conundrums. I once heard it said, there's no such thing as an ethical conundrum when you're given a lecture. I've had many ethical conundrums, and one of them isn't the fact that I can enhance performance. There are many other ethical conundrums, and I think it's something that academics get caught up in. And the sad fact about sports psychology is that about, you know, maybe 90, 80% of people who are involved in sports psychology are academics. They're not pracademics and they're not practical applied people who are out there in the field. And I think if you were to turn around and ask this question to a CBT practitioner who's trained and that's what the NHS provides or a clinical psychologist, they would just laugh at your face and they would say, stop being stupid. That's it. So I have absolutely no respect for any academic who answers that question with a no. Apart from you, Pete, I have lots of respect for you. You're wonderful. Thanks, Hugh. <laughs> I'm still saying that. Um, <laughs> we'll, 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 this is a, a quick hitter question. Like real quick, quick answers to this one. Uh, this is a question from Fundamental Craft on Instagram. If you could speak to yourself back on your first day of being a sports psych, what advice would you give? I'm saying if you're going to do it, go all the way. Go all the way into the fact that you get... In fact, do you know what? I'm going to put this in, in a very big context. I the, One of the first times I met you, I think it might have been the second time, I was introduced but to you with another sports psych who's a great fellow, and another fellow called Dave Hembra, who's been on our podcast. And we sat down and we talked about the trials and tribulations of being a sports psych. And essentially what you had is two guys sat there with yourself, uh, who you, you'd find your sort of niche and you're doing your thing. And the one bit of advice that you actually gave me was you get one go round. Is this what you want to be stressed about? Or something along those lines. That's it. You get one I life. I remember that conversation. Yeah. So you get one go round. What do you want to be stressed about? Is this what you want your life to be? And f and you said, 
for me, it's not about traveling six miles to speak to one athlete to do applied psych. It's about whatever it is that you said after that. And I think that really stood with me. So my point is that if this is a career for you, look at it from the point of view of, A, I need to produce these little small round gold things called pound coins. How am I going to do that? There's a business involved and that might be through employment or that might be through entrepreneurship. So find out how you're going to make money to, money with this thing. And the biggest problem for me is that nobody connects the academia and the BSEs and the BPS process to creating money. So that's my advice. My advice is you need to work out how to make money from what you do. And to go back to our previous question about claiming you enhance performance, funny enough, claiming you can enhance performance because you do enhance performance and you can evidence that through social proof, et cetera, is a good way of helping you make little round gold things that you can pay your bills with. Elliot, what do you say? If you could speak to yourself back on your first day of being a sports psych, what advice would you give? Well, being one of the few people that make a living out of it, um, but I would say to myself, be bold and do it. It's going to be great. You're going to find yourself and just be vigilant not to lose yourself. I've had a great ride so far, so I would just, if I could go back and speak to myself, I would say, do it. Awesome. I like that. I like that answer because it was really short and concise. Um <laughs> <laughs> So hopefully you're still with us. Um, we've been talking for two and a half hours. Uh, I'm not sure how long it'll be once we've edited it, but uh, we've had some really interesting conversations here. We're here with Elliot Newell, and it's a Twitter takeover. It's not a Twitter takeover. It's a listener takeover, and you are asking the questions. Our next question is from Vicky Price on Twitter. And uh, full disclosure, I know Vicky Price. I taught her as an undergraduate student uh, way, way, way back in the day. That makes her sound really old. She's not that. <laughs> I was thinking that. Um, I taught her as an undergraduate student uh, a few years back. And she's uh, just finishing up her, her PhD. Uh, so first of all, I want to say, Vicky, very, very proud of you. Um, you've come a long way. And I think you're doing an absolutely fantastic job. So Vicky says, um, love the podcast and your insights and advice, getting me through online data collection and the writing upstage. Uh Vicky wants advice for transitioning from a PhD stage into either a sports psychologist or a lecturer role and says, do you ever get the, uh, or do you ever get over imposter syndrome? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take this one first, actually, if that's all right. And in terms of advice for being a lecturer, um, stay one chapter ahead of your students. If you can stay one <laughs> chapter ahead of your students, you'll be absolutely fine. Um, no, in, in, in all seriousness, though, I think in terms of going into academia, my genuine piece of advice would be to try and not get caught up in the the celebration of overwork. And I guess that's the same in, in a lot of different fields. But, you know, academia celebrates and promotes overwork and it's not healthy. It's not a healthy environment to be in. There's an expectation to produce, to be working evenings and weekends and to be answering emails at all hours. And you get 
quite senior staff members emailing you at four o'clock on a Saturday morning. And it just kind of all feeds into this culture of overwork. So the advice that I would give you, and it's, it's, it's easy for me to say from the position that I'm in, but resist, resist that pressure because I've experienced burnout through working in academia and it's absolutely no fun at all. But there's no way of avoiding it. There's no way of avoiding burnout if you buy into that culture of overwork. Um, so resist, resist, resist is what I would say to 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 that. Resist that culture of overwork. To to answer the second part of the question, Vicky, the imposter syndrome. I don't know if the other guys have got an answer to this question that that might be different to mine, but no, I you, you don't ever get over it. Or I I don't feel that I've ever gotten over this idea of imposter syndrome. Um, I always still have this feeling that I'm going to get found out. Something that's been really good, actually, has been doing this podcast. It was absolutely terrifying for me to to kind of put myself out there. I don't know if you, if you felt the same, but to really genuinely sort of put yourself out there, I, I found it really, really just a terrifying thought just to be like really sort of vulnerable. So I remember recording the first few and just being like, are people going to listen? Like, is anybody going to care? Is it going to be good? Oh my God, we sound awful, blah, blah, blah. But this has been really good. And part of the the the, the reason why it's been really good is because, you know, we have these guests on and they're experts in their field and we ask them all these questions. And when they're answering them, I'm thinking, yeah, that's what I would have said. Oh yeah, I, I probably would have said that as well. So it just gives you that sort of little bit of reassurance that you're not just an idiot who's pretending to be you know, a psychologist or a, a lecturer or whatever. But in terms of the, the, you know, the question, do you ever get over it? Probably not. What I would say is to almost reframe it and think, okay, well, what is it about the environment that is causing me to have this imposter syndrome, that is causing me to think that I'm not good enough to be in it? Is it about me or is it about something about the culture that I'm in, something about the environment that I'm in that is actually making me feel like I'm not good enough to be in it. I, I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that, Elliot? You, any, any thoughts? One point of reflection on imposter syndrome is that um, I have to admit, I don't get it. And it all started um, with a very memorable and transformational conversation I had with a mentor which started with your at all. Uh, as most but I, that was really pivotal for me because like, I can't be an imposter of myself. All I have to do in my work is turn up and be me. Like that's the only pressure I put on myself now. And it came from that conversation that you are the tool. It's not your imagery scripts. It's not your goal setting. It's not your counseling. You are the mechanism for change. And you are the mechanism by which you build a meaningful relationship that enhances well-being learning and performance in the athlete. Hugh, what about you? Any any thoughts on the kind of, well, either the imposter syndrome, I mean, you've already kind of given some advice on, on being a sports psych in the previous question, but uh, what about the imposter syndrome? But any advice for Vicky there or, or any thoughts that, that you might want to share? You only get imposter syndrome um, if you're good. I tried to learn this. I, I use this anecdote all the time. I tried to learn to skateboard at like 33, about five years ago. And I never once got imposter syndrome when I was trying to skateboard because I was shit at it. And, you know, you only get imposter syndrome when you're actually good at something because you're like, oh, they think I'm good. Oh, no, they're going to find out I'm not that good. 
And that that's my understanding of it is that if I get imposter syndrome, it must mean that I'm actually good at something because when I'm bad at something, I just get shit syndrome. I'm shit at it. Um, mm. It's like we all get at different things that we do that we're shit at. Um, but I actually really liked what Elliot said that, you know, as a sports psych, you're not the imposter. You're a tool and you're there to work for the person and with the person. So, and I think that's a really important thing to look at from a psych perspective is because we've both looked at imposter syndrome and, and framed it in such a way that allows us to cope and adapt with what we need to do. He's done it his way. I've done it my way. Um, and I don't think there's a right way, but we've both sort of twisted that feeling and scenario to allow us to cope. So that that's an interesting perspective in itself. So my question is like, okay, let's assume you are an imposter. How do you want to cope with that? And my... My first advice would be like, okay, you're probably not an imposter. You know a lot of stuff as a PhD. If you've got a PhD, you might be slightly weak at some things. What are those things that you can improve at? And that's all you have to do is you have to look at what you can improve at. But you're not going to be all things to all people. And an interesting thing that I read was that, you know, as a as a practitioner is that your level of competence gets to a certain point. And then it slowly degrades in terms of your skill and procedural competence, but actually it mm-hmm. slowly increases in terms of your intuitive com- competence. So that as your skill competence declines because you're less focused on your skill, your intuition and experience competence actually increases and it sort of keeps you level at a certain point. So how are you increasing your experience competence and how you increasing your skill competence would be my questions. And that'll help, you know, improve you. And if you're improving, then why can you not be an improver? Why do you have to be competent? Why do you have to be experienced in competence? Because like, I'd be honest, the most boring people I meet are the people who know everything and the people who think they're competent. (laughs) And, you know, there's no, just you've got this thing called social media. Check it out. There's loads of them on it. Yeah, it highlights this other bit that, that like, don't fear imposter syndrome or, or don't cloak it in a, it's a confidence issue thing because, like, trust your gut. Like, if your gut is thinking, like, oh, maybe I'm not as good as, or maybe I'm not what people think, or, or maybe I'm not as effective as I could be, like, you know, that could be really great. provocation from reflection so don't lose that just be fair to yourself when when you do get it that that would be the important bit but yeah but don't dismiss it completely Mm. because it might be the the prerequisite to your next big learning moment do you you know what elliot that 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 makes perfect sense and i was just going to say that I, i guess from that imposter syndrome comes a sense of vulnerability and pretty much and i say this to my students all the time like all of the cool stuff that i've done has come from a place of being vulnerable. So I think about, well, you know, doing this podcast, right? I had to put myself in a position of of intense vulnerability to put myself out there and do it. And it's probably one of the most fun things that I've done in my career in sports psychology. I tell my students, put yourself out there, be vulnerable, go and present your work at conferences. It's terrifying. The first time you do it, it's absolutely terrifying and you have to be vulnerable to do it. But all of the cool stuff that I've done, I went to live in Sweden for a little while and teach over there. I have now got a, a second job in Norway because of presenting at conferences and networking, getting to know people. 
even like doing the PhD in the first place, who am I to be doing a PhD? Doing the MSc, you know, after I finished my undergraduate degree, I worked for four years, I worked for the home office and I quit my job, put myself in, again, a really vulnerable position, going back to study after years away from academia, studying the degree in the first place, going to college to do night classes. All of these things are things that require me to be really, really vulnerable, to feel like an imposter. And if I hadn't done all of those things, if I hadn't embraced that vulnerability, I wouldn't have got to do any of the really cool stuff that I've got to do. So no, you probably don't ever get over imposter syndrome. Well, well, personally, anyway, I don't think I ever get over it, but embracing it has just allowed me to do all of the cool things that I've done in my life. Um, and I would not change that. You know, a friend of mine once said that today's news is yesterday's chip papers. And I think that along your life, you're going to become the news and you're also going to become the chip papers. You're going to make mistakes. I think the point is that, you know, when you experience failure and setbacks and whatever else, just remember that those failures and setbacks aren't you. They're a part of you. The point being that the imposter syndrome comes from this like fear of oh no they're going to find me out you don't have to be perfect and if you are perfect like if you are actually good at what you do and you're 100 perfect you're a narcissist and you should stop so embrace that imposter syndrome as pete said because your mistakes are what make you good and your mistakes are where you'll improve okay so if you're still with us, I'm sure you'll be pleased to know that this is our last question. Um, we are here with Elliot Newell, and this is our listener takeover episode where you're asking the questions. This question comes from Shamima Youssef. Uh, this was uh, via email. If you didn't know, we've got an email address. It's 80percentmental at gmail.com. So if you want to email us, you can do that. Or you can get in touch via Twitter at EPM Podcast or Instagram at 80percentmental. Uh, 80percentmental is all words. But Shamima's question, Sham's question is, given your cultural identity differences and political differences, how do you manage your differences in opinions about race and racism perspectives to enable you to work together fruitfully in the sports like education arena and to impact on one another's worldviews? Now, this question obviously is aimed at you and myself. Uh, we have cultural identity differences, if you hadn't noticed um i'm not sure whether we really do have political differences here do we i i would hazard a guess and say that we don't um and yeah i don't know i i would say no, no I, I, okay so let's get into this question pete me and you have a number of differences um and we think differently because like i'm applied you're more academic um we think differently because you're black and I'm white. I don't know if that causes you to think differently because we've got different skin color, but we've got different experiences. But at the same time, though, we've also got similar experiences. Um, I'm going to pull Elliot in here. And, you know, myself and Elliot were in an experience where, um, well, I think Elliot, we were out for a beer and something got shouted at me, which was along the lines of, why don't you go back to your own country? And... <laughs> And you turned around and said to me, does that happen to you often? And it was kind of like with a voice of recognition of that somebody's probably said that to you at some point. So I suppose 
my understanding of this is that uh, often at times people are identified across some sort of demarcation, whether it be accent or skin color or disability or, mm. or any other thing that, you know, even gender, whatever it is. So I don't know, Elliot, like you've seen this question come in. Have you, have you any thoughts on this? Because like, I, I probably work as well with you as I, I do with Pete. Um, any thoughts there? Um, not specifically, other than um, I guess the, the point of difference is a really good um, springboard to have a conversation around, like, how might you see the world? Because you can't always take for granted um, that people see things in a similar way to you. And like that experience that you just shared there that we had was a real kind of trigger for all right, let, what type of experiences have you had that have led to the way that you think? Um, and I find it as a real kind of great stimulus for a deeper understanding. It was quite handy. There was that idiot that walked past and shouted something horrible because <laughs> I don't know if I ever would have just said, hey, Hugh, it's your round next. And by the way, has anyone told you to go back to your country? <laughs> I get that all the time. <laughs> Well, I, th- I think that's a really important point, though, Elliot, because, you know, if you look at what's happened in the last year, mm-hmm. world events have sparked a lot of conversations, in, in particular about race and racism. And, um, you know, I think it's fair to say, Hugh, that you and I have had some pretty in-depth conversations about th- some of this stuff that maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't have had those conversations had not world events kind of uh kind of pushed us towards those conversations yeah. I, 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 I don't know well i would say let's not beat about the bush pete here like you know let, let's be honest to our listeners and let's be honest to to people who listen also known as our listeners um but but the, <laughs> <laughs> so but but let's be honest like Sorry, uh, you and me have had conversations to the point where we, we've both admitted to each other that we've lost sleep over our views about the mm-hmm. conversations and i don't know if that's a good thing but i also don't know if that's a bad thing i think the bad thing for me is that when people stop stop talking my experience of growing up in northern ireland is that i have to look at somebody who I completely disagree with, somebody who is completely against my view and against my opinion, maybe even at times against my existence. And I have to look at that. And the only way that I can look at that in a good way is if I look at that with respect and and trying to be curious and trying to understand. Um, And I appreciate that's not a viewpoint of uh, that, that is easily taken. So uh, to be, to be, put a very blunt point on it. Um, during my experience growing up in Northern Ireland, um, we couldn't go through a certain area on the way to school on the bus. And as a result, my school journey was 15 minutes longer than it should have been. As a result, that accounts to about 15 days, knocked off my childhood, sat in a mm. bus. But also there was like a transition bus where you had to transfer to one bus to another. And sometimes that was late. Because I didn't feel safe, I bought a knife and I carried a knife and you know people are talking about knife crime these days and thinking that you know this is a bad thing but like people carry knives because they're afraid 
and that that's why I carried a knife. And what I would say is that the purpose of interaction and the purpose of understanding is to become not afraid to actually listen to the person and understand them as best you can. And it's very difficult to do that. And I would admit, I don't fully understand Pete. And I would like to think that Pete doesn't fully understand me. But by listening to him and understanding him, I have changed some of my views. And also some of my views have solidified. And that's not a problem. The problem for me is when me and Pete stop communicating. And I'd say that probably happens. It probably happens like maybe two days at a time, three days a month, a week. No, not a month. You're far too persistent, Pete. But like, you know, (laughs) there's there's, there's degrees of silences. But Mm. for me, like the answer to Sham's question here is that fundamentally, I need to keep the communication channels open with Pete. And Pete needs to keep the communication channels open with me. And if we disagree that's going to be difficult and we have to understand each other. And I think that's where we need to get to is a point of understanding and we cannot get to that point. And if we cannot get to that point, I'm okay with that, providing we have the ability to communicate because once we've lost the ability to communicate, we're fucked. Do you you know what's really interesting here is that my my answer to this question is pretty much identical to yours um, in that you know, first of all, it's about not being afraid to have those difficult conversations because they are difficult conversations sometimes. And again, it's that sort of being, putting yourself in a position of, of, of being vulnerable. And you and I have both done that. We've kind of said to each other, look, I, like you said, you know, we've lost sleep over this. Like, uh, you know, I'm really struggling with the way that you're thinking about this or that. And we've had those really open and honest conversations and, and not being afraid to do that is the first step. But the second thing and the most important thing, I think, and, and, and you sort of said this, you is listening to people with the purpose of understanding them rather than listening with the purpose of trying to reply to them. And... We, we had a conversation a few weeks back uh, where you talked a little bit more openly and, and uh, you know, we, we've kind of not really had that conversation before, but you talked more openly about your upbringing and your kind of experience of growing up in Northern Ireland. And for me, that, that really helped me to understand where you're coming from with a lot of the conversations that we've had and kind of your experiences and your background helped me understand why you have the approach or the viewpoint that you have on certain things um and i didn't know that before you know I, I didn't know that before but i was trying to listen to that with the purpose of really really understanding rather than what we all do all the time is saying okay yeah but and then launching into what we think and you know if we can just like get over that for five seconds and really listen to what someone's saying to try and understand them rather than to try and get into this game of one-upmanship or, or kind of, you know, replying or yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, then like that is the foundation for a really productive conversation. And I, you know, you kind of know it theoretically that that's what you should be doing, but putting that into practice is sometimes quite difficult because we all have quite entrenched views uh, and we all want to get across our viewpoint and we all want to say where we're coming from. Um, but really listening to somebody with the purpose of understanding them, I think is, uh, is, is, is probably the most important thing that you can do uh, when you're having some of these difficult conversations. Well, that's it. That's the end of our listener takeover episode. We've been here with Elliot Newell. 
And we've been answering your questions. Uh, this conversation has lasted well over three hours. Uh, we'll probably <laughs> edit it down to something that is more listenable to. Um, but we've had a great conversation. We've had a great time. We've answered some really insightful questions from you, and we've had some great answers uh, from our guest, Elliot, and some adequate answers from you and myself. Um, we'll do this again sometime. It's been fun. Elliot, will you come back on? Yes, I have had a ton of fun. So, yeah, provided Hugh uh, continues to bang himself, I am all in. I'm just curious, Elliot, uh, if, you know, our listeners got in touch and they said, we would love for you, Elliot and Pete, to have a conversation uh, through a webinar series, uh, maybe a two-hour chat live where they get to come in and dial in, would you be up for that? Yes. Okay. I, I, I just feel immediately suspicious. <laughs> I don't know well, if you're I, setting me up for a joke or like, yeah. I mean, to be honest, yeah. Elliot, this is news to me as well. So, <laughs> and, okay, listen. You know, so, if, if we if we if we release the unedited version of this podcast, no, we're not allowed to do that. I think the the idea of the idea of doing something fully live terrifies me. No, no unedited yeah. versions. I, I I would say we we would be in our best behavior. And what I would say to our listeners is we, we need to use the power of peer pressure to force Elliot into a webinar with myself and Pete, where we answer further questions live on air. And I think that will be a wonderful uh, event. So peer pressure, folks, there you go. Elliot, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Um, I hope no, that you've, you've no enjoyed worries. yourself. I have. It's been great. Thanks for thanks for some great insight and some great laughs. I don't know what that noise was. That was my pen um, dropping. All right. So the okay. Well, that's it then for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any comments or any thoughts or even any further questions, you can get in touch via a website, 80percentmental.com, where you can also listen to all of our other episodes uh, and subscribe if you like what you're hearing. Uh, you can find us on Apple and Spotify and all those other good podcast places as well. And if you do like what you're hearing, the best thing that you can do is leave a review uh, or share on your own social media so that other people can find the podcast. Um, go on, interrupt me again, Hugh. Pete, we'll see you again later. Oh, wait, we won't. This podcast.